Hey, Prestige Heads, it's me, your co-host, Danny Bessner here, and even though this is only our second episode, my comrade Derek Davison has absconded on vacation, and so this episode will be a little different. It'll be an interview with our comrade and friend Matt Chrisman of the famed Chapo Trap House podcast. Uh, just normally, episodes will be dropping on Friday morning, and we'll be giving you a little bit of what's going on in the world, in U.S. foreign policy, and a bunch of other fun things related to those two issues. So uh, thanks again for listening and enjoy our second episode and we'll be back next week. everyone, and welcome to the second episode of American Prestige, the new left-wing foreign policy podcast hosted by myself, Daniel Bessner, and my comrade in arms, uh, Derek Davison. And, you know, for our second episode, we thought we'd really bring in a very prestigious guest, the famed Matthew Chrisman of the infamous Chapo Trap House podcast, and in particular because Matt is doing a, a new podcast titled Hell of Presidents with a Chapo producer, Chris Wade, that really gets into a lot of the ideas, uh, a lot of the structures, a lot of the problems that we're going to be examining each and every hellish week on this podcast. So Matt, uh, thank you very much for coming. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, so why don't, you know, as we get going, why don't you tell us uh, about the podcast? Why did you get started on it? What made you want to do it at this particular moment, particularly after, you know, Bernie's, uh, uh epic loss, epic fail in the 2020, uh, election? Uh, it actually came out of the fact that, uh, honestly, it was, it was Chris's idea, our producer. So if it's not good, you can blame him, <laughs> uh, because he had Damn just you, noticed, he had just noticed that, uh, when we were just hanging out or talking that I would often end up uh, just talking about the presidents for some reason and about their weird specific peccadilloes and, and, and stories about them. And, and, and he's the one who suggested maybe that would make a good framework for a podcast that uh, went through American history, uh, the stuff that you learn in school basically. And, uh, complemented the narrative, the sort of, and then this happened, and then this happened narrative that you get there with a uh, contextualization, with with by with an emphasis on the material factors and the structures that determine these the the outcomes, uh, and that the president is the office of the presidency is a a good way to uh, is a good focus for that because you get to invert this the uh, traditional. Uh, understanding of it where it is uh you know history is sort of made by the presidents making choices and we're we're talking about the presidents and their specific personalities and the things that make them interesting and the things that make them consequential but in the context always of what forces brought them to power and constrained them once they reached it so that's the general idea is, is to uh, demystify a little bit of the, of the mythic history that you get about how America uh, developed the way it did by highlighting its material determiners. 
Yeah, and I we're all around the same age. And Derek, I don't know if th- if this was the case for you or Matt, if this was the case for you. But I remember, you know, always learning in school. It's very much focused on, on a type of individual creativity and individual action, uh, acting in the world. And to me, that reflects obviously the long-standing American tradition of hyper individualism, but also the neoliberal era in which we we grew, which is sort of like men upon horseback transforming history. And I think there's really. Uh, a, a lack of understanding of, of the deep structural forces that push individuals in a particular direction. And it's kind of, uh, you know, the classic agent structure problem that historians have been arguing about now for a for hundred years. And it seems like what's interesting to do is to really focus on the structure. Yeah, that that's the idea. Although uh, we do it because we focus on the presidencies, the tension there between structure and, and the individual agency is always highlighted. And and you do talk, and and I do think it's important to note the moments in history when individual agency actually becomes meaningful, uh, which is usually in moments of great crisis and stress within the system, uh, and and the role more really than agency uh, that luck has to do with everything, that that chance has to do with everything. I think that uh, understanding the dynamic as one between structure and chance is more. Uh, elucidating that imagining it as a as a uh as a tension between structure and individual will because the will ends up really just being the residue of that uh the happenstance i feel like uh, yeah i i mean i think talking about these things in terms of systems and processes and kind of counterbalancing that with the individual gets you uh, to some very interesting places like my recollection of U.S. history. And, you know, I went in a different direction when I was in college, but uh, like in high school, for example, was like you jumped around. There were these big gaps where you just didn't talk about anything. And the the reason is because there wasn't like a great president to talk about. Like you couldn't hang the story on this great individual. So like, you know, nobody gave a shit about John Tyler and, you know, you don't hear about like Rutherford B. Hayes. Like there's just these guys that kind of, you know, pass through in, in a day where you, when you're, you know, it's like the day when you cover all the material from the civil war to world war one. Yeah. Which is when America, as we know, it was made (laughs) right. Like that era that the, the processes that began after the civil war uh, are the ones that created the American, the America that we know, like the pre civil war America is very much not the same country. Whereas you can, you can trace America from after the, the cat, the catastrophe and the cataclysm of the civil war. The thing that rose out of that, uh, explosion and that collapse of the southern economy is uh, the modern America, but its birth era is just uh, the t- the the uh, Grant. Uh, he had he drank a whiskey ring. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, railroad maybe there's they just kind of yeah it's 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 sort of one breath until you get to World War One. Even though the country that fights World War One was made by that process and uh, wouldn't have been able to take the role that it did after World War One without it. Yeah, it's when industrial capitalism essentially takes over the whole thing. Right. So because you've been doing uh, such like extensive research, how how have you seen the office of the presidency itself change from, you know, Washington down down to Biden? Have you seen any big shifts that have really uh, transformed the whole thing? Or has it been, you know, obviously there's a change in American structure. You, you get a slow rise, you know, from continental empire to hemispheric empire to global empire. But how has the office of the presidency, in your perspective, 
have changed over the course of this, you know, 250 plus year period? Well, one of the peculiarities of the office of the American presidency is that unlike in, in most of the democracies that came after it, the office of head of state and head of government are the same. Uh, whereas most democracies uh, are either constitutional monarchies where you have a, a royal house that is formally the head of state and embodies the state and its cont continuity. And then you have a prime minister who is in charge of the specific government that is operating at that moment. Uh, or if you don't have a... a uh, uh, a royal house, you have a largely symbolic presidency. Uh, the presidency combines both of those offices. Uh, and the initial conception of the presidency in the Constitution and by the founders was very vague. It was uh, the notion of, of creating a, a executive figure was very uh, uncomfortable because at that point, the country still was very much in the 13 former colonies that had what they imagined was sovereignty uh, and had uh, power oriented around statewide uh, elites that did not want to see that power ceded anywhere. And so the office of the presidency was largely left a question mark. Uh, and because of that, uh, the fig George Washington, the, the, the sort of spotless victor, the guy who had won the war and then refused the crown basically and by doing so had shown his virtue was the only person who could do the job uh because he was the only person anyone could trust with that kind of authority that kind of sort of protean power and once in office washington uh was essentially forced to make it up as he went along uh, and in so doing uh give sort of an articulation to the the head of government part which was really the part that was left out uh, and 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 started spelling out you know the, the prerogatives of the office and of course that left that left the the majority of uh, of uh, specific especially southern elites and uh, the whatever percentage of uh, you know uh, plain American uh, citizens uh, very upset because they were still uh, in the thrall of the notion of uh, a sort of anarchic autonomous uh, republic. Uh, but you know the necessities of of creating a competitive state that could compete uh, uh, on terms with the European powers essentially necessitated the assertion of this authority. And the the march of uh, the presidential power throughout American history is for a long time the accumulation of powers around the office and the assertion of that role as uh, head of government. And that the the role of head of state sort of becoming less and less emphasized. But I think that in the last forty years, we've seen a situation where uh, there's the where the uh, the parabola has changed, and now the office has become more and more symbolic. More, even though the powers are still technically there, the powers that have been accumulated in the in the presidency are uh, are all there. But many of those have now been abrogated to, to this the. Uh, the structures around the, the presidency, around the executive, uh, the national security state. I mean, you could really pinpoint a lot of it to, to uh, uh, the moment after World War II when the national security state is, is first founded. And then, of course, you know, once, once the questions of uh, macroeconomic importance are taken from, uh, the, gover from the democratic uh, uh, adjudication, the presidency, for all of its theoretical power and its administrative power, 
uh, becomes more and more an empty office, and which is why I think you're, you've seen now this progression of presidents who, to one degree or another, sort of fetishize their powerlessness, while we as voters and as citizens become more and more invested in them uh, and in their uh, leadership, not because of any power they hold, but because of what they symbolize as not head of government, but as head of state. So we're now in a situation where we have we have where the president has sort of abdicated a lot of the uh, powers of the head of government and is now wielding psychic power across the land by what they represent about what America is, uh, what which is the the traditional role of the head of government, or I mean, sorry, the head of state. And and that's a really interesting point because you could almost say that as you know the state itself, I, I would frame it as becoming increasingly privatized. Yeah. That you've seen the outsourcing of a lot of you know proper functions of government. For example, like even to determining U.S. strategy, uh, grand strategy in the world to think tanks, or you know this whole think tank nexus that I'm sure uh, Derek and I are going to spend you know years <laughs> browbeating. Um, uh, as you see that sort of outsourcing, um, and also of course, you know, to the Fed, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the Fed, people elected to it have 14-year terms, yeah. something along yes. those lines, right, which is just as anti-democratic right. as one could possibly get. You see, as as the individual person, and even, even the uh, person elected becomes less and less powerful, their psychic... Um, force increases for some reason and and sort of the these individual figures become the the sites of this psychic struggle uh between different people i don't i don't know Derek, i mean i, I think, think that's that? what we've seen you know it, it's become more and more acute like over the last i would say three presidents i mean just the the extent to which like obama maybe to a little bit lesser extent but then trump and now biden are just like these empty vessels that people pour, you know, pour their kind of uh, political hopes and biases and, 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 you know, sort of into without really any kind of consideration for for policy. I mean, Trump embodied a certain type of uh, white conservative rage and Biden embodies a certain type of brunch going <laughs> urbanite kind of frustration and backlash over that and it's just like they're almost irrelevant it's what what we kind of pour into them one of the things i think is really interesting about what you were talking about matt the the distinction between uh those two roles is you know when the united states now is this sort of global hegemon goes around the world kind of rebuilding seeding democracy as we like to think of it uh, we don't take our own system to other places like we <laughs> insist on you know when pay, pay, countries are writing new constitutions that we have a hand in there's always a division between the head of government and the head of state we on some level know that this is not and uh, something that these are not offices that should be combined into into one thing. They should be separate. I mean, the, 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 if you want a government that functions, you wouldn't want that. But that's why the same, you know, uh, forces that keep those offices separate when they're setting up foreign governments have absolutely no urge to change it here. <laughs> because at, at, <laughs> no, at sort of no desire cockpit, for anything that works here. In, in yeah. the cockpit of global capitalism, democracy has to be as uh, held at arm's length from power as possible because uh, in the minds of those who actually run this thing, it can't be afforded. Democracy is literally too expensive uh, in, in the center, like directing it, uh, directing resources and directing policy uh, uh, to be allowed. And so having 
this system that is premised on these division of power, these this uh, checks and balances is, of course, you know, wholly uh, been superseded by the creation of, of political parties uh, and this uh, this hybrid office uh, that is simply not up to the ability to uh, reflect any kind of democratic desire uh, is optimal, really, because uh, it, it's not like it uh, feels less democratic to the people who are voting. I mean, obviously, the people who have stopped voting because they've rightly recognized the futility of politics, uh, are, are seeing through the, the matrix here. Uh, but for the politically engaged, who you don't need that many of, you know, we got about half the population who votes, that's enough. That's enough for, for legitimacy. Uh, that that m- almost mystical question of who will represent the nation uh, becomes more than enough to invest with all of their energy. Because to them it is it is an existential question who the president is because that means what that rep, that means what country it is and that is why you started saying uh, uh, in two thousand after the two thousand eight collapse which is I think the necessary background for any understanding of like the breaking up of the American. Uh, uh, public sphere that everyone talks about like people want to talk about facebook and they want to talk about social media and fox news and those are all contributors but they're all contributors in a context uh where we had the great depression again only we did not actually right. have a uh government response adequate to the uh the the crisis and and we and and, and instead of uh changing our the relationship of the citizen to the to the um government and the economy in a way that was uh you know, responsive to people's uh, pain, uh, we created a new type of economy where precarity was built even more into it, and where where uh, a sense of futurelessness and anxiety is universalized. And that's the context where uh, people suddenly decided that they didn't recognize their neighbors anymore. And what that means is that when you have a a, a presidential election where there's two parties representing two broad constituencies, demographic constituencies. Uh, whoever wins is not, uh, you know, the president of everyone, the way people used to think. They are now a partisan representative of one faction. Uh, and their uh, power is, in the minds of those who lost the election, inherently illegitimate. And that was true of Obama. It's certainly true of Trump. And now it's true of Biden. And that is, uh, that's what happens when the presidency is not an office of uh, uh, where, you know, uh, where policy is made, but where the national uh, identity is held. And, and but Biden played that really hard, which, of course, he did with his lack of any real vision uh, or ability, frankly, to to change the trajectory of America's economy. Uh, he, he talked about how this last election was a battle for the soul of the nation. And for a lot of the people who voted for him, they thought that they were rescuing America's soul. But by definition, that means that the people who don't like him, this is the loss of America's soul. Did he use the language of soul? Oh, yeah. He said it's a so battle for Pat the soul Buchanan. of America like 50 times. He was his favorite right. thing to say. That's Pat Buchanan, right? The war for the soul of America. I think I think about the culture war. But anyway, uh, this is a pro-Biden podcast, so please uh, <laughs> keep your criticism down. But this actually, I think, leads to uh, one of the major... Leader. 
God bless him. Well, uh, this actually leads to one of the major questions that I have, like from a macro historical perspective. Uh, and I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts on this because the Western Hemisphere, as I'm sure you both know, is the hemisphere of the presidency, right? The, the presidential systems didn't really exist in the same way in Europe um, or, or even elsewhere throughout the world. So one of the big questions to me is like, why unlike Latin America, which has a ton of presidential systems, but has also ha has had a ton of revolutions, has had a ton of constitutions. Why has the American presidency and the American constitutional system that supports it been so stable? Like Matt just said, and I think rightly, like the president has become this extremely partisan figure, which is what the founders themselves were very worried about whenever they're talking about the capital I interests or the creation of political parties and blah, blah, blah. So that happened, but it hasn't led interestingly to me, to the sites, uh, to the type of like reconstitutionalization process or revolutionary process that has happened elsewhere in presidential systems. What do you think that is? Well, the thesis of our podcast, me and Chris's podcast, is that uh, all, uh, all the questions of why is this still the way it is? Why are we, why did, why have at every point Amer has America uh, turned away from like a real reckoning with its, uh, with its system and with the the structures of exploitation that make it up is uh, the free real estate is the fact that at every point of crisis, uh, America's system has had the capacity to uh, essentially buy off whatever percentage of uh, the federal uh, restive lower and middle classes that were that they needed to with a. Uh, with a, a, a land grant in one form or another. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, it literally was uh, the expropriated lands of uh, the former Native American tribes uh, that were fully settled through uh, the uh, extension of the railroads uh, and, and then the formation of you know, the, the infrastructure that al allowed people to, to move to places and just and, and continue a, a, a vision of... Uh, yeoman self-sufficiency that had uh, has always been the the, uh, the engine of America's notion of liberty. Uh, the the American idea of freedom, uh, unlike in Europe, uh, has no communal context to it. There is no there is no inherent notion that that uh, that freedom has to be communal to be meaningful. That there has to be a communal uh, uh, advantage. Uh, and that one's own benefit is by definition connected to others. Uh, because of the, the land, because of the, the easily uh, expropriatable land uh, of North America, uh, the, the fantasy of autonomy and freedom away from and, uh, without having to abrogate any uh, political rights outside of the South uh, was able to persist. And at every crucial conflict point, uh, that has sort of rescued uh, the American system. It did so after the Civil War. Uh, it did so um, in the formation of uh, the extension of America's frontier into the the question in, into the making of empire uh, at the turn of the century. And then, most importantly, uh, after uh, the working class mo political mobilization in this country reached a genuinely threatening level during the Great Depression, uh, th th a great enough percentage of the American working class was absorbed into this particularly American uh, Frankenstein concept of middle class through uh, essentially a second Homestead Act of uh, federally financed mortgages and uh, uh, privately constructed uh, suburbs. 
Uh, and at every point, that has saved the system from its contradictions. Now, what we're seeing at this moment, the first real breakdown of an understanding of you know, a communal American project since the 1860s, uh, is all in the context of that process breaking down of America's of of a, of a totalized world um, economy where the United States is no longer able to expropriate at will, uh, and that means that the offer is no longer on the table. the The free real estate has run out. Uh, uh, it the, the it is as uh, Greg Grandin put it in the title of his book, the end of the myth, uh, and 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 that. I think is the fundamental context for all understanding of our current political uh, uh, identity crisis that we're going on, uh, and it, it is going to have to be addressed one way or another. There is going to have to be uh, a democratic reassertion of control, uh, a a reprioritization of uh, of actual human values over profits, uh, or the the. Uh, legitimacy of this system, which has lasted far past its natural logical uh, sell-by date, will will continue to be eroded. I think that's a really, I think that's really, you know, really a great point that you're making here. And I, I, I think to sort of bring it, you know, back to foreign policy, which is what we're kind of doing on this podcast, uh, to, to think about how much of that process was fueled by the empire building process. I mean, sort of, yeah. you know, claiming more and more land first in North America, then kind of extending hegemony, you know, through the Western hemisphere. Uh, but, but things that happened in sort of a period of American history in the 19th century, really, that uh, I don't think for a lot of people they're understood in the context of foreign policy somehow, because they happened in North America, because they happened uh, in sort of the sphere of the United States. And, and there is this, I think, tendency to view foreign policy as a thing that emerged in like the Spanish-American War or uh, in World War One, America just suddenly kind of emerges. Um, but, you know, the Indian Wars... Uh, the 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 conquest basically manifest destiny the conquest of North America uh, the Mexican American War these are things that in in proper context should be understood as foreign affairs on some level um, and and I, I'm I'm curious like how much of how much of that you know kind of 19th century foreign policy were you a little bit, you know, did did your perceptions of um, these events change at all while you were studying this stuff? Or did you have a, a sort of moment where, you know, that it sort of clicked as, uh, you know, kind of something that fits in this arena versus, uh, you know, as is traditionally thought of kind of domestic affairs? And before, Matt, before you do that, I just want to add to Derek's thing. I think it's important also from a particular perspective, you could say the United States, we talk about a lot about endless war today, but from the beginning, it's been endless war when you think about, you know, the displacement of native peoples, right? That That is baked into the cake of the United States. And so there's always been this otherizing enemy. I mean, it's been endless empire building, you know, this this yep, idea exactly. that the global empire emerges after World War II. OK, but the reason that the United States emerges after World War II as this kind of world bestrotting, bestrotting titan is because the, the empire was already baked into the system, like those mechanisms were already there. 
Um, and, and, you know, I think to, to get back to your point about what happened in 2008 and the, the sort of um, situation that we're in now, I think it, it could be analogized to what happens to any empire when the land runs out, when you stop conquering new lands and stop kind of feeding uh, into the system in that way. And, and something has to give at that point. Right. So in, um, yeah, there is a forgotten uh, history of American expansionism in the 19th century. Uh, before the Civil War, though, uh, th- that expansionism uh, was largely headquartered uh, in one of the two competing sort of political economies that made up the uh, the American system. The the, the Southern uh, slaveholding uh, elite were the ones who were most fixated on westward and for mostly forgotten, but also important to them, southern expansion, uh, in because of the economic necessity of increasing slave ter- slave territory to maintain the viability of the slave economy, uh, and uh, in the north there was actually sort of a resistance to that. Specific, I mean, certainly by the time the Whigs uh, come into existence, uh, they are uh, defined politically by their. Uh, there and even before that, John Quincy Adams uh, were defined by their skepticism towards the headlong pace of westward expansion, and were fully uh, uh, resistant to southern expansion. Uh, and but you know the 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 need to relieve pressure through uh, uh, and uh, through expansion of settling lands, the needs to uh, make revenue through the sale of government lands uh, that did provide a, a, a bipartisan, I guess you'd put it, impetus towards westward expansion. Uh, but the the larger imperial project, uh, which Matt Karp talks about in his book, uh, about that involved t- taking Cuba, taking Central America, uh, that really was a southern project that was, more as time went on, more and more resisted uh, by the North. But once the Civil War uh, essentially decapitates the political autonomy of the Southern ruling class and incorporates them into this new uh, corporate industrial capitalism, uh, either as winners or losers, but with, in, within it and no longer uh, able to exercise uh, their own independent control over the government. Uh, colonialism then becomes the, a, the national project. And the culmination of that is, of course, the Spanish-American War, which was noted at the time for being the real moment that the Civil War ended, uh, the moment when we went from uh, saying the United States are to saying the United States is, was when we went outside of our borders to to uh, conquer. Of course, in the name of uh, of human rights, of course, uh, but but nonetheless, uh, uh, to further that expansionary premise that. Could, was always there, could never be denied. And once America sort of became a more synthesized uh, political economy after the Civil War, uh, was still a fundamental uh, imperative of the state because expansion is the only mechanism that could guarantee the continued stability uh, and uh, thriving of the American government. 
So that's the material base of expansion, and I think there's there's really a lot there. Uh, did you guys at all uh, approach the question of you know liberalism writ large? I mean, you gestured toward human rights, but I think that today our foreign policy debate in this country is really organized around two sides of, of liberalism, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, about are you going to be able to bring progress, and in what particular way you're going to be uh, able to bring progress? So how did that sort of 19th century classical liberal approach to things in, inform? Uh, in your or in your take, um, both the presidency and the American empire as it was built. Uh, I mean, I think that that the American liberalism has been the ideological uh, uh, structure of American power uh, ever since the creation of the United States. Uh, and it's it's the structure that's that's in the heads of everyone uh, who has carried out power in this country and the majority of people who have, uh, even participated in politics from the position of uh, elections because it's always the federal middle classes who make up the most articulate political uh, formation within any country. And they, that, is, that is the sector of the country where the ideology of, of liberalism and, and liberal autonomy uh, and the, the idea of uh, personal, uh, personal freedom and identity being found in market relationships – uh, is most deeply held, and it. I think, and uh, I follow uh, people like uh, Eric Foner in in pointing out that it was the liberal structure of 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 the Republican Party uh, at its top that was one of the greatest impediments to a effective and meaningful reconstruction. Uh, beyond, of course, the massive resistance of the former Confederate. Uh, ruling elite and and the rank and file of the confederate army uh the northern republican party was uh fundamentally uh resistant to the implications of emancipation uh because they would have required the state to be transformed in a way that they uh were fully resistant to of course the irony is is that the state did fully transform all around them but in other ways by mainly by its complete uh subsumption by this new uh, capitalist leviathan that emerged from the Civil War uh, around the, those people uh, and firms that had uh, profited from the, the war making itself and were able to essentially purchase control of the government and control of uh, the distribution of resources uh, of this newly conquered continent. So then, um, so then, then my question is: is how do you understand this, this sort of? schematic element of the of the US state where you do have I think a skepticism of the American state as it's being built but also this construction of this of this global imperial colossus uh, that really bestrides the world what do you see changing essentially in the early 20th century to the mid 20th century that pushes forward that shift from continental hemispheric with you know we have the Philippines so a little bit outside the hemisphere but then to truly global empire is it just the search for land or how does security or ideas of security or fears of security play into the transformation of the presidency well one big thing that happens in the early 20th century is that the United States surpasses uh, Europe in economic uh, output and uh, economic power. Uh, right before World War One, and then it is World War One itself, the, the the conflagration of the war, that demonstrates the fundamental non viability of direct state competition within an industrial capitalist system. Uh, that that Europe 
uh, could not compete in that sort of uh, the Westphalian anarchy with the technology of the 20th century. Uh, it would literally destroy capitalism. There needed to be uh, superenumerated powers. There needed to be institutions that transcended national interest and that coordinated trade and coordinated competition without allowing military conflict to uh, be the final settler of account. Uh, and that was the project that Woodrow Wilson was trying to uh, pursue after the war. But the polities, either both in Europe and in the United States, were not there yet. And it took the Second World War and the, the real full like annihilation of not just you know armies in the field, but actual industrial capacity in Europe to allow for a new uh, global order to be asserted on the on the land, but it was all it was a dawning recognition in the early 20th century among those in power uh, of the need for there to be a final world global empire of capital that could prevent capitalism from destroying itself through uh, military conflict. I wonder how much. I mean, you. I'm, I'm sure you guys get into this, but how much World War II fed this kind of beast on the level of kind of rhetoric and uh, ideology in a sense, because World War II and the, the nature of that conflict kind of provides the opportunity to start talking about these contests in terms of good and evil uh, and, you know, making very powerful kind of moral arguments uh, to, to the public. I mean, this is something that uh, Stephen Wertheim's written about, and Dan, uh, Danny, you've written about this as well. Kind of the rise of of foreign policy as um, you know rhetoric and sort of the the way it's framed is not just uh, kind of about interests or or you know these kind of less interesting, less appealing concepts, uh, and the the rise of kind of the search for an enemy and the need for uh, an evil kind of evil force that we're countering in the world. And, um, you know, the Nazis were perfect for that, with the sort of perfect uh, kind of kind of instrument to, to sort of make that kind of a part of of the way that we talk about foreign policy. And I, I'm, I'm curious um, you know, whether that is, is a consideration that, that you, uh, kind of found. Yeah. I mean, Hitler, uh, the world war two, the, they become, they become the, the template for every conflict that comes afterwards. Uh, but, uh, it is, and it's, it's very useful because it elides how the, the conflict of the cold war, uh, and after has really transcended the, uh, the existential, uh, stakes of of world war ii uh because uh the art the 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 specter of the nazis is the specter of a another world war like another ground war another another ap apocalypse of violence uh specifically in uh in europe but anywhere that the united states you know wants wants to fearmonger uh but the reality of the creation of that of of the post-war Pax Americana is that such a thing is basically impossible. What isn't impossible is for uh, subject peoples in the periphery of empire uh, whose role is to provide cheap labor and materials to soothe the conflicts at the heart of the system, to, to keep the Europeans and the Americans uh, comfortable and not at each other's throats, uh, necessitates 
the ability of the American empire to intervene domestically in their politics uh, to prevent the emergence of uh, counter-hegemonic forces that might change the balance of uh, power and, and undermine the, the flow, the capital flows that define uh, world peace. Uh, and that second half of, of the uh, a question is easily avoided with the moralist language of grand conflict and good and evil that World War II uh, provides. And I think a lot of people actually really believe it. And, and Matt, I'll let you continue in a second. But just to underline what you're saying, throughout the Cold War period, the United States uh, intervened 66 times covertly to overthrow regimes. And I believe in 44, somewhere around 44 of those cases explicitly uh, supported authoritarian forces. Yeah. So it was like very clear on the ground. But sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I mean, but like, if they wanted to be honest about it, they'd say... Look, these guys are certainly more like Hitler in their disposition and their actions towards their domestic uh, enemies uh, than the people that they're fighting. But part of their commitment is to maintain uh, this system that keeps us all peaceful and relatively happy in the center. And are you willing to give that up for an abstract notion of, uh, of human rights? Uh, and most people would probably say no, but the beauty of it is that the questions are never even posed because of the, uh, you know, the structures of consent manufacture that dominate the way that the, the, all these questions are, are discussed and the absence from uh, the field of any real challenge to the fundamental premises of all of it. So let's play some geopolitics. Let's play some Axis and Allies, which I suspect some of us have played in the past. Did the Soviet Union have a chance, geopolitically speaking, you know, counterfactually speaking? Was there ever a chance for the Soviet Union to seriously challenge American hegemony after 1945? Or was, are we, basically what I'm asking is, is it best to understand the Cold War as a genuine conflict between two world approaches, two world systems, economic systems, or was it really about the slow rise to American primacy over the course of, you know, the second half of the 20th century? And to both of you guys. I think that this is where that fixation that I have on the intersection between structural dynamics and, and chance comes in because there are a number of, of things that if they had, if the results had changed, if, 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 if contingent effect events within the structure that we could sort of take for granted were different, uh, might have allowed for a, uh, a real challenge. But I think that once Truman takes over, uh, once the bomb is dropped, once Stalin commits to a, a self-preservation to, towards uh, towards in, integrating into this new uh, post-war global structure where the reserve currency will be the United States dollar, uh, I don't. I think it's only a matter of time at that at that point. And and the Cold War really is. It's less this titanic battle between two sides than it is a war between America's headquartered capitalist hegemony uh, and the rest of the world for access and control over its resources. And the United S- and Soviet Union is, is one power that is, uh, among several others, resistant to that process that by the 18, uh, late, 18, late 80s is no longer able to provide effective resistance. And once it falls away, uh, effective resistance basically ends. And now we're in sort of the, the, 
the terminal point where capitalism has been fully globalized. There's no more uh, organized state-level resistance to capitalism. Uh, and now it's crises that are accumulating more and more are f- purely internal. Uh, yeah, I think I mean, I think the, the deck was always stacked. Uh, the the example I would point to is, um, you know, the concept of overreaching in foreign affairs, which is something that very much applied to the Soviet Union. And, and you know, the, the place to look is, is Afghanistan, right? I mean, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and that was sort of uh, you know, they'd gone too far and the United States was able to, through a variety of means, you know, uh, uh, hide the Mujahideen, the brave Mujahideen fighters. Uh, um, you know, we were able to overextend the Soviets and contribute to the downfall of that system uh, because there was this, you know, massive kind of countervailing uh, uh, pressure already on the Soviets to, you know, that they, they couldn't afford to make a mistake like that or to get themselves in a situation like that, uh, you know, and, and still continue that, that doesn't exist for the United States. Even, even when the Soviet Union was around, it never existed for the United States. But, uh, you know, certainly now, you know, having been in Afghanistan twice as long as the Soviets were, uh, and achieved basically the same thing, uh, nothing, uh, there's no, I mean, there's no serious way in which Afghanistan is, uh, you know, affecting the United States the way that that it affected the Soviet Union, and, and uh, you know, it's a place that that we can leave now and, um, you know, just kind of tr- forget that anything happened, pretend it all, you know, uh, all, none of it happened, and and move on with our lives. Uh, th- you know, that that to me is the, the sort of stark, um, you know, very clear representation of the the difference between what the soviets faced and and the pressures that the soviets faced and the pressures that the united states faces which are basically nil yeah danny and i have talked about this but it, uh the the crucial moment is after world war one the crucial moment is in europe in that in that moment and and specifically germany uh and as soon as socialism becomes a state project and specifically a project in a country that is uh a essentially a feudal uh, uh, agricultural empire with with almost no developed uh, capitalist mechanisms or industry. Uh, it really is basically a matter of time. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, th- th- I think from the perspective of 2021, we're almost trying to look at like where did things go wrong, and I think World War One is clearly more so than anything else the, the hinge point. But what you guys just said leads me to sort of like this this idea that I've been kicking around in my head is that more than anything, at least in terms of the political realm, not the economic realm, our political life can be uh, defined, and Matt, we've talked about this, as sort of the de- a demassified, you know, politics, right? Like like mass politics, we have the structures and the, even the ideas of mass politics, but our system just doesn't function that way, particularly when it comes to war. Once the draft ended, you know, with the establishment of the, uh, basically Congress didn't renew the draft in 73, and so you get an all-volunteer force, war becomes a very 
you know, specialized thing, the division of labor. The rest of American society is totally separate from it. So, you know, the overwhelming majority of Americans, particularly the Americans who, like, make war, have no stake in it, no personal stake in it. And I think that allows, you know, the United States to do things like be in Afghanistan for uh, uh, twice the amount of times that that the Soviet Union was in that. So, which leads me to my point, which is that I think we're at a situation, and I'd like to get you guys, your guys' thoughts on this as we wrap up. Um, I think we're in a situation where American society is like obviously in some real way coming apart at the seams in a real way. Like like Matt said, no one rep- the presidents don't represent the nation; they represent the party. Um, and there's a million examples of that. But at the same time, I think we have an insanely stable American empire. Um, you know, the famous 750 military bases, the spending of the money. Joe Biden, um, I think, has has just uh, asked for what what is it, Derek? You can correct me, but uh, basically approaching the 2011 defense budget, which is you know one of the highest of all time. So we have this weird situation, which is an unstable domestic society and an incredibly stable empire, uh, and therefore, unlike in the past, you know, with 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 Rome or even Britain or the Ottomans or, or the Mongols, you know, domestic stability, which made sure that Mongols didn't overtake Europe, um, led to a decline in war fighting. And I don't think we're going to see that now because you actually don't need need that many people to run the American drone empire, the archipelago empire, whatever you want to call it. So that to me is a a kind of unique situation, an exceptional situation in history. And I was wondering if you guys think I'm wrong about that or if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, I think that not only do we not ask uh, the public to participate directly in, in wars anymore, you're right, we created this sort of specialized uh, warrior class uh, that's increasingly disconnected from the, the the sort of massive mass of the the American public. We don't even like raise taxes anymore to pay for these conflicts. Like we just let it skate, and the money is sort of fictional anyway. I guess at this point, uh, you know, to to talk about. Uh, military budgets of seven hundred and forty billion dollars and seven hundred fifty three billion is the the proposal for twenty twenty two. The numbers are so big that it's you know people can't get their heads around it anyway. Um, and and there is no way in which uh, the effects of this directly touch on the American people. You can talk about trade offs, and this is what I think you know some people like. Bernie Sanders have done politically. You can talk about what could we be spending that $750 billion on if we weren't spending on the military. But that's abstract. Like there's no concrete thing for people to sort of hang their uh, their thoughts on. Like we're m- missing out on this because we've got, you know, all these military bases overseas or we're missing out. Like I'm not getting this specific thing because we're still at war in, you know, eight different countries. Um, and and I, I think that's right. The domestic... And the foreign uh, aspects of, of the empire have gotten completely separated on some level, at least in terms of the costs of the the empire being borne by uh, the people back home. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, it's now uh, increased. Like, that's why I feel like questions of, of mass politics uh, are sort of uh, mass politics as a threat to. Uh, uh, existential threat to like our lives and 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 safety uh, get uh, overblown because the real threat is that politics is being fully spectacleized and detached from actual power and replaced by technology. Like uh, we now have a military empire that is largely remote controlled. Uh, 
and that requires relatively few people to actually manage it. And, and those people are brought into the military not by some co- uh, the overt coercion of a draft, but by the covert coercion of economic necessity. And at every level, the actual authority is technologicalized and, and uh, hidden and, and subsumed, meaning that as you know, crises continue to mount, we can assume that the viability of, of you know, a lot of these economic structures are going to be undermined. And the real existential danger is going to be that this technological empire, which is essentially point and click, can be pointed at anyone. And that authority will be asserted not through the streets and not through marching paramilitaries, but just by the existing technological structures of empire. Yeah, I, I think we're very close to seeing like tons of drones over any protest. Um, I, you, you've already started to see them. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the protests. It's, um, you know, we're close to seeing like drones and not even drones that need necessarily human input. I mean, we're getting closer to the point where you have fully autonomous or at least somewhat autonomous, uh, you know, weapons platforms that are out there, you know, potentially killing people, which, you know, even kind of takes us even further in the direction of uh, kind of hiding the the costs of war, the costs of empire from the American people. Now we get to a point where the technology is so good, even this specialized military class, the specialized warrior class isn't at risk anymore. Like they're not going out in the field. You don't have manned aircraft that can get shot down. You don't have necessarily uh, soldiers on the ground. You may have a, a small group of special forces, like a, a, another kind of, you know, more elite class within the, the warrior class. But even that may go away at some point. So even, you know, s- sort of the reports of, uh, you know, Americans being killed in combat or being killed in these perpetual empire policing operations. That's not a factor that, that becomes, you know, less and less a factor as you move in the, the direction of more technology, more kind of uh, autonomy, more drones. The people who die, of course, are the people who are on the other end of that, yeah. uh, who are at the frontiers of the empire. And, you know, that's politically, I think, unfortunately, uh, we've seen we've it's become pretty clear that that's not an, an issue for most people in, in the United States. It's not an issue at all. And as always, Paul Verhoeven and The Simpsons predicted this uh, years ago about, <laughs> you know, most of our wars being fought by small robots. Um, but I, I think now uh, is about the time we should wrap up unless, Matt, you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, that that was a very... Uh, you always want to end on, a, on an up note and... Uh, and- <laughs> The, the cyber uh, empire uh, just surveilling and uh, compelling us until we become uh, uh, we become as debased in our humanity as the machines that overrule us is, is a really fun uh, fun way to go out. <laughs> no, good. So in, in the end, presidents, good or bad? <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, the reformers with results. and They're all trying their best. <laughs> That's true. Ending we just on a downer is, is the American prestige guarantee. We will oh, end I on would a downer hope so. yeah. as, as uh, often as we possibly can. <laughs> yeah, that's a sad fact. So uh, thanks, thanks, Matt. Uh, thanks, Derek. And we'll see you all uh, prestige heads uh, next week. Thanks, Bye. Matt. Thanks for yeah, doing it. Yeah, thank you.